Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Bitcoin is up more than 150% year to date. That is a stunning number. And it's not just Bitcoin. Cryptocurrencies of all types have been on fire from Ethereum to Litecoin to Zcash. Uh, all of these cryptocurrencies has, have soared over 50% to more than $90 billion in market cap in the past, just the past seven days. To understand what this is, is this a bubble? Uh, I am very happy to bring in Ron Quaranta. He is the founder and chairman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance, and he joins me here in the Bloomberg 11330 studios uh, in New York City. Ron, what is going on here? Are we experiencing a mass bubble that will end in tears? Good morning. Good to be here again. Um, I would suggest we're actually looking at the emergence, and <clears throat> we have this conversation with a lot of our members, of potentially a new class of asset, uh, a new way to uh, gain alpha. So there's certainly a bit of the hype cycle. I mean, last evening, Bitcoin crossed the $2,700 Mark, and by way of context, if you purchased around this time uh, in 2010 Bitcoin, you would have spent $0.08. Cents. The total market cap, as you mentioned, is approaching over $90 billion. Yeah, but you know, okay, so if you think about a currency, right, there's a lot of controversy over is Bitcoin a currency? Are some of these other cryptocurrencies truly currencies? And typically for something to be considered a currency, it needs to have some level of stability. It needs to be backed by uh, at least the, the full faith in a nation and a sovereignty to uphold a certain kind of trade agreement or something underneath it. Uh, and when you see this kind of volatility, doesn't that challenge the concept of Bitcoin as a currency? Yeah, it certainly challenges the concept concept of um, the type of investment that it might represent. But what I can tell you is that, again, in the conversations with our with our members and the market, Bitcoin and, and Ether and, and all of these um, uh, cryptocurrencies are really representing a, a different type of investment, a different type of asset class. So how industry is looking at it, how investment managers, some of our fastest growing demographic are asset managers, looking at this different type of tradable commodity right, or but, asset. But, but okay, so understood. So in other words, you're saying it's institutions that are coming mm -hmm. in uh, to invest in it as an asset class. Of course, it's a little confusing to me because currency typically the reason why people will invest in it is a sort of a wager on the health of a country uh, but just sort of in its own right what is it if it's not going to be adopted on more platforms then it's it's really a useless kind of asset well I think what you're looking at is the the wager on the adoption of blockchain the underlying blockchain technology across different industry segments that is really where the value is being derived where the perceived value over time the digital currencies the digital assets these tokens represent what we often say is the um, the seeping of blockchain technology across the canvas of financial markets. So it's very interesting. Abby, Abigail Johnson, uh, CEO of Fidelity, this week came out and uh, not only expressed her deep interest in underlying blockchain technology, but the fact that Fidelity.com customers will be able to see digital currency information on Fidelity.com coming up soon. So in other words, as blockchain is adopted, these cryptocurrencies will more easily be adaptable to the big institutions as far as a transfer of money and will therefore be more useful. Uh, one thing that people have speculated is that Bitcoin in particular has been a, an instrument for Chinese uh, wealthy uh, 
uh, individuals who want to get their money out of the country without having to be slammed down by some of these capital control rules. Uh, do you think that that's what's going on here? I, I don't think it is. In, I, I think there's some of that potentially happening. And I can tell you in the conversations that we have within the WSBA, I don't think that's the main driver of the price appreciation that you're seeing for Bitcoin and other the, digital currencies. Even the 50% increase just in this past week? Yeah, I, I really, I truly believe that that's representative of global financial markets interest. Um, so by way of example, again, um, recently the SEC had an opportunity to review an ETF based on Bitcoin, which they rejected, but um, did take the opportunity to review that rejection. So there is the possibility in the not too distant future for a Bitcoin based ETF. Okay, but why now? So I think the market really is looking for something that is unique and differentiating, and digital currencies, digital assets represent that differentiation. So we can talk about blockchain, the underlying technology that's reinventing how Wall Street and financial markets do what they do. You can look at digital currencies and digital assets as a as a different type of exposure to that different asset class. You can look at really beginning to understand that cutting edge of financial market investment. And so when you look at digital tokens, for example, you're looking at a reevaluation of um, how investment decisions are made, how asset allocation will happen, how alpha is uh, pursued, for example. So in other words, people are investing in cryptocurrencies as a proxy for investing in blockchain technology more broadly and its adoption across in, uh, financial industries. Correct. In some, in some deep measure, it's a reflection of that wager of will blockchain reinvent how financial services work? Does it really serve as a proxy, though? Because if you think about it, not all of these cryptocurrencies are going to survive. That's absolutely true. When you look at the the uh, universe of digital currencies, there's well over 700 of them. Most of them. That's will, not going to stay. That like will that. not stay. No. That will not sustain. <laughs> but those that have the deepest liquidity, the greatest um, access to multiple marketplaces, those that are representative of the best and deepest innovation. So when you look at Ether, for example, Ethereum. Um, recently, uh, there was the Enterprise uh, Ethereum Enterprise Alliance where global corporate organizations are getting together. And we participate in that alliance to understand how Ethereum rewrites how certain processes across global financial markets operate. Those will be the ones that succeed over time. So uh, going forward, what are you looking for to make sure that this is not a bubble and that it can be sustainable? Coming out of financial services for, for many years, when you see double-digit uh, increases on a day-by-day -day basis, you, you begin to be concerned. Yes. Um, so there is some, <laughs> and, and I, would, I don't think anyone, uh, certainly within the WSBA, would deny there's some level of hype uh, in, in some measure. Um, but this, this does seem to be a sustainable rise. Um, so we'll see some of the, f the froth come out of the bubble of some of this. Um, but the conversations we have, asset managers, hedge funds, deeply interested in the long-term viability of digital currencies as part of their portfolio. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. This Absolutely. is definitely a hot topic and one uh, that we will be talking more about. Ron Quaranta, founder and chairman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance, which is based in New York City. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York City. Indices, the broad indices, are crawling to new record highs. Dave Wilson is here in the Bloomberg 1130 studios with me right now. Uh, he is the stock's editor, columnist, and blogger for MLive Go on the Bloomberg that we all love to hear from uh, every day. Dave, uh, what is driving this melt up? 
Well, really, it's a, a pretty broad-based advance, but if you had to point to one area in particular, you'd look at the retailers. I mean, John Tucker just mentioned what's going on with Best Buy, with that stock up almost 15%, but certainly not the only company that we're seeing rising in response to earnings. Uh, you think about PVH, which is Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. Uh, their numbers are out, and that stock's up 4.8%. Uh, you see Ulta Beauty. Uh, which is everything from beauty supplies to a salon to you name it, one-stop shopping. And those shares are are higher by 3.5%. So, you know, perhaps uh, some of the latest numbers, at least, you know, for that area, I mean, providing some relief. I mean, one interesting example is Signet Jewelers. Yeah. Uh, You know, the stock took a hit yesterday in response to results from Tiffany. Its numbers come out, and they're not good. Uh, and, And the stock takes a hit before the opening bell, and it's made back that loss and moved higher by nine-tenths of a percent. So, you know, it goes to show you that even for some of these companies that have been taking a bit of a beating lately, uh, there is at least some uh, sense of a a recovery. So, you know, you kind of put things in that perspective, and you see why you're you're seeing some strength in the market here. You know, and and before we dig into retailers, I just want to note you have uh, bond yields in the U.S., headed a touch lower. You had yesterday's meeting minutes, which were uh, actually really interesting for the first time in a while and actually told us something that we did not know, which was details about the Fed's plan to unwind its balance sheet. And it showed that, frankly, it was not going to be done at any kind of pace that would cause any disruption to the markets. So it's sort of this odd Goldilocks scenario that's definitely, I'm sure, helping prop up stocks uh, as well as suppress bond yields uh, and, and boost bond prices. We're still back in this sort of you know, market that's a wash in uh, central bank cash. It's not going away. No, it's not. And let's face it. I mean, the central bankers are doing everything they can not to surprise the market yeah. because they don't want any real sort of shocks. I mean, we certainly had a shock, you know, in a sense a week ago, uh, we saw shares take a hit. And since then, I mean, you're talking about an S&P 500 that's headed for its sixth straight gain. So it's been up every day since that recovery. So it's yeah. almost like the buy the dip behavior that we've seen uh, emerge in the last couple of years as stocks have rallied is really kind of carrying forth as uh, we go on here. All right. So let's dig a little bit more into Best Buy and some of the retailer uh, results that are propping up some stocks. Best Buy in particular up more than 15% so far uh, today. I want to bring in Joseph Feldman. He's Senior Managing Director and Retail Analyst at Telsey Group, uh, who covers Best Buy. And, you know, is this just a case of a Nintendo console that is boosting everything? Or is Best Buy actually doing something different to get customers into the brick and mortar uh, that distinguishes it from some of the online retailers? I think Best Buy is doing something different and has been doing something different for a little while now. Um, you know, they, they several years ago, they embarked on this transformation where they re- level set their business model and, you know, brought prices down. They figured out how to compete more directly online. They're very good at, in terms of, um, you know, ship from store, pick up at store, uh, leveraging all sorts of, you know, omni-channel or multi-channel retail, uh, combining digital and physical. And I think that's been a big difference for them. Uh, you know, they are the go-to source at this point. They are the last man standing of sorts. And they're making the most of it. They're well, a very efficient operator. Can we, can we talk a little bit about how they're combining the brick and mortar and the digital in a way that gives them an edge? 
Sure. So as an example, you know, I think it's over 40% of uh, online orders are actually picked up at the store. You know, now one would think, well, oh, everybody wants to just buy a TV online and have it shipped to their house. But you know what? A lot of people like to go into the store. They may pick up the accessories. They may confirm the order that they bought. They may be sitting at their desk right now at the office and and saying, you know what, I need to pick something up on the way home. And they'll purchase it and want it the same day. So you get the immediate gratification of that. That's one thing. Another thing is, again, leveraging their inventory to ship from the store directly. Um, You know, they can do that. And they can they so so they're combining the best of both worlds, you know. And when a few years ago, when they lowered prices on all their products to be everyday same price with Amazon and Walmart and others, it took away that showrooming aspect. Because if you're in the store anyway, you may as well buy it and walk out. You know, it's it's fascinating to me. I'm looking at Best Buy shares up more than 37% now on the year. A massive uh, increase for a retailer that's supposed to be on its deathbed because it's a retailer and it's got yep. brick and mortar <laughs> uh, yep. shops. You know, I have to wonder, I, I do want to ask you, when Dave and I were, were here yesterday talking with Seema Shah of Bloomberg Intelligence, we were talking about Signet and some of the other uh, retailers and Lowe's, uh, which reported disappointing earnings yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was talking about how one potential headwind is a deterioration deteriorating consumer credit worthiness that we've seen in increasing uh, card charge-offs and uh, increasing delinquencies. I'm wondering, at a place like Best Buy, does that matter? No, it absolutely does matter. I mean, you know, to the extent that the consumer, you know, has too much debt already and then, you know, can't maybe get more access because, you know, with large ticket items like a TV or a computer or other things, the consumer often is using credit to to make that purchase. Uh, and, And I know that we've seen credit levels uh, have been on the rise. You know, it, more of it's been driven by home and car uh, than, than actual, you know, in-store retail purchases. But we are seeing that. Uh, but that also may be a sign that the, the economy is a little bit better, employment's better, consumers feeling a little bit, you know, more, more secure in their position. Well, does this mean to you, the fact that Best Buy delivered these results, does this mean to you that retail has turned the corner? And that there is a balancing out between the online and the brick and mortar and the sweet spot lies somewhere that some of these retailers can still compete. I, I, I agree with your statements with the exception of I'm not sure that Best Buy is Best Buy's emblematic of where retail should be or may be headed um, in terms of, you know, combining the best of physical and digital and leveraging service and and customer you know information within the stores but at the same time you know i don't i think it's hard to say i mean the department stores have been under a lot of pressure lately um you know the some of the apparel retailers have been under some pressure you know not everybody is best buy just further along in in resetting that operating format for themselves and it may not translate to every other sector and it's still early days for for a lot of people and it's still early for Best Buy even. Well you know one other store that we're watching today one other uh, retailer Sears a lot of people have been writing Mm -hmm. Sears obituary for a long time right I mean it's like the company that's that's just refusing to die but ought to right and then today it reported earnings that were way better than people expected and its shares are up more than 20 percent I mean I did not think I would be saying that about (laughs) Sears Holding Corporation I mean this is the uh, the retailer that Eddie Lampert has basically been uh, pumping with his own personal cash to sort of keep it hobbling along and yet here we are it's pushing out its debt maturities and it's delivering uh, sales gains that that are better than, than people 
people had ever expected. How is this possible? I mean, again, does this sort of speak to that narrative of, you know, perhaps not all retailers, as you were saying before, not all retailers are turning the corner and finding that balance. But there are some out there that are finding uh, some edge in there to sort of compete with Amazon and get on their get on their uh, their feet. Yeah, I think I think that the Sears issue is more one of an expectations game where the expectations were so low and so bad. And, and to your point, yesterday they, they got a lifeline by extending the debt uh, out to January with even a, a, an option to extend it to July of next year. Uh, so effectively, there was a lot of negative sentiment around the name or the assumption that, that Sears was going to have to file for bankruptcy sometime this year, and, and now that does not seem to be the case. And then you compare the expectations for the performance and in terms of their first quarter operating performance, and it did certainly better. But let's not let mistake the fact that I think the Sears comp was down 12% and Kmart was down 10 or 11%. You know, like it, it was not uh, strong numbers, to say the least, uh, with both uh, businesses down. You know, this is interesting to me because it, the fact that people are then piling back in suggests to me that, that traders are desperate to get a deal, right? And people have been sort of circling the retail industry, which has been so beaten up. And they're saying, look, when can we pump our money in here and get in on the bottom, right? I mean, I know that I've talked to many distressed debt investors and people talk about that. I mean, uh, Dave, I, I want to bring you in here. I mean, do you get the sense that there is some sort of bottom fishing and, you know, the fact that any less disappointing result is going to result in some massive pop because people are just desperate to find a cheap stock? If I'd put it that way, I mean, bottom fishing is one of those phrases that you kind of fall back on when you lack a better idea. Here's another one. Short covering. Right, the idea fine. of buying back shares that you previously sold figure the stock's going down. And you bring that up in the case of Sears because something like 60% almost of the shares available for trading have been sold short. So there's a lot of speculation that you know, Sears's future is uh, kind of going the way of uh, its past several years. So, you know, in that context, you get any piece of positive uh, news. And let's face it, that, I mean, they did sell their Craftsman Tool brand to Stanley Back Black & Decker in the right. quarter. That figured into the numbers. And so that may explain why the comparisons were off. Nonetheless, uh, you've got all these people betting against the company. And sometimes that gets a little painful when you see these kinds of reversals. <laughs> Joe, uh, I'm, I'm Very looking... well said. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, all right, fine. Bottom fishing perhaps wasn't the best uh, <laughs> description of it. But Joe, I wanted to get your take. I mean, we're getting to the end here of the earnings season. And uh, a lot of these companies that, that you cover from Lowe's to Walmart's to Home Depot to Staples, I mean, it's sort of a, a motley crew as far as the results go. I mean, is there any theme any new theme that's sort of emerging from this earnings season for retailers that you think people will take uh, going forward to influence their investing decisions? I think what you saw is that whether delays in tax refunds, there were definitely some exogenous factors, so to speak, that that really did have an impact on retail sales. And I do think that, you know, the, the relative to expectations, the trends have been a little bit better. Trends have gotten better in April. It seems like they've continued to be better in May. And, you know, you can't ignore the fact that the consumer's in a relatively healthy position. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pressures. There's health care costs, and there's, you know, gas prices going up a little bit. But 
you know, for the most part, you know, employment, we're at seemingly full employment and interest rates are still relatively low and home prices are going up. So the consumer is armed with the ability to spend. And I think that another theme that we've seen is I, I do believe, you know, more retail specific, you're actually going to start seeing a little more investment in the stores again. Because the store experience is still crucial, even and you have to combine it with digital. And I think that retailers were so focused on technology for the past few years and fixing up that side of the business that they're now going to be kind of shifting back a little towards the stores. But this is interesting. This is interesting to me. In other words, you're saying that uh, retailers are going to start putting more money into their physical locations and trying to combine the digital with those. I'm trying to imagine what that would look like. Which company, which retailer would you call? Why don't you wander over to Columbus Circle today? Okay. Where Amazon has started its first New York bookstore, now open. So, you know, that's part of it, no doubt. Uh, And when you figure that, you know, Amazon's going in that direction, they have a few other bookstores. They're looking to open at least one more in the city here. And, And so it's understandable. What have you got as a retailer that Amazon doesn't have, at least before the, these openings, and it's a storefront. It's a way yeah, for but, people to get to you. But but isn't this more than that? Because an investment in a store could mean making it more of an experience. It could be making uh, making it into uh, an event space in a way where people can even order the merchandise and pick it up there, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the classic brick-and-mortar experience. Joe? Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that's what retailers are trying to get at. And 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 to your point, I mean, the Amazon, they they understand that there's there need to be close to the to the consumer. I mean, look, I know the the rapid growth in retail is all digital or online, whatever you want to call it. It's still only what ten percent of overall retail sales. Yeah. It's going to twenty probably in the next decade, but. Still, the 80% of the business is still going to be touching a store in some way. Returns touch the store. And, oh, by the way, when you bring in a return, oftentimes you buy more or do an add-on or do something different in the store. If you're picking up at the store, you can do add-on sales. And to your point, if you can create kind of an experience and some theater within the store and better service, that can help uh, to drive, drive sales. Joseph Feldman, thank you so much for joining us. Joseph Feldman is Senior Managing Director and Retail Analyst at Telsey Group, uh, talking about Best Buy and all things retail. And of course, our big thanks to Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, Blogger on MLive Go on the Bloomberg and a columnist uh, here at Bloomberg News. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. Right now, I want to bring in Carl Riccadani. He's chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, who's here to break down what we learned yesterday from the meeting minutes that were released from the FOMC's uh, May 2nd and 3rd meeting. Uh, usually, these minutes 
are not that instructive. People parse uh, specific words as far as growth accelerating, whether, you know, there's any kind of uh, just tenuousness as far as the strength, the strength in the economy on the behalf of Fed members. But this time, these were exciting minutes. Uh, yes, they were relatively exciting. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, normally the uh, minutes kind of fill in some of the gaps of the uh, uh, relatively short uh, meeting statement. Uh, but uh, recently, the minutes have been providing clues or additional clues uh, regarding what the uh, Fed's uh, balance sheet unwind will look like in terms of when it will start and uh, how it will be executed. And just to put this into perspective, so the Federal Reserve has about four and a half trillion dollars of assets on its books, including about two and a half trillion dollars worth of U.S. Treasuries. They are one of the biggest holders of Treasuries in the in the U.S. debt market. Uh, and here they are. They've built up this war chest of debt, and now they're trying to figure out how to shrink it uh, for a variety of different reasons. And now they're coming out with a plan that could potentially shake the markets. Absolutely. And uh, so uh, just under uh, $2 trillion in mortgage-backed securities as well. So uh, this uh, does provide some distortion into the markets, which was desirable at the time they were doing it. It was a form of economic stimulus. Uh, but uh, it, you know, as, as with most things, they, uh, the party comes to an end and they need to uh, unwind. And well, They so, don't need to, but they want to for a variety of reasons. Well, they do need to uh, basically uh, start removing uh, policy accommodation. And so uh, you know, whether they're doing that through interest rate increases or balance sheet reduction, right? You, know, you could make the argument they need to do one versus the other, but they do need to uh, start normalizing policy as the economy normalizes, meaning that the unemployment rate has uh, basically return to normal. Uh, GDP growth is back to normal. Uh, inflation is very nearly back to normal. Uh, but policy is set at a still very accommodative stance, assuming they raise rates at the June meeting, which in the minutes they suggested that that was a very strong possibility. It's, all, it's priced into the market. It's priced in Fed Fund futures okay. almost oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> uh, right. So uh, assuming that they uh, raise rates at the June meeting, now they are just back to where rates stood at the low point of the last economic cycle, the low level that actually was part of the reason for the inflation of the housing bubble. So the Fed is very sensitive uh, that if you keep rates too low for too long, you create financial and market distortions. Uh, and I think that's a significant motivating factor for them to continue on this very gradual path towards a higher level of interest rates. Right. And so to get to the minutes, what they outlined, which I thought was so fascinating, was uh, the way that they would stop reinvesting the money that they got back from bonds that they Holds. In other words, as things pay down, do they put that money back into the market or not? And they basically said, we will put it, we will we'll, we'll not put some of it in the market. And we will cap the amount that we won't put back in the market at a certain level. And then we'll increase that cap every three months, right? Exactly. So they've continually narrowed down the range of options. One option, uh, which was dismissed a while ago, was actively selling the assets on the balance sheet. They ruled that out. Uh, the next uh, most aggressive scenario was to just end reinvestment. So if a mortgage is prepaid or a treasury uh, security matures, uh, they would not reinvest that into uh, new uh, securities. Now what they're doing, if they had done that, that would, uh, that would lead disruptive. to an un a wild <laughs> unwind of the balance right. sheet. I, I compare this to a fire hose that you're you're not holding on to the end, just whipping yeah, yeah, yeah. back and forth. Well, Some months about. you'd have as little as about $5 billion rolling off, and in other months you might have uh, 40 to $50 billion rolling off, uh, and that would be very difficult for the markets to digest. So right. instead, they have this uh, uh, cap, basically, uh, where they'll say, okay, we'll let X amount run off. Uh, and the rest will be reinvested. Uh, and the cap will start off very small, I think 
probably two billion is a reasonable estimate. Seriously, uh, and then that's that will very be small. that's extremely small. This yeah. is tiptoeing in because yeah. they don't want the markets to have a tantrum. Uh, so you start off at maybe two billion and then inch that up to uh, what we'll call cruising speed, which I think could reasonably in the, be in the vicinity of uh, ten billion. When are they going to give more details? Uh, they said that more details will be coming soon. They'll continue the discussions at the June meeting, uh, which, again, should be a light lift because they're raising rates. That's already agreed upon uh, basically by between the markets and the Fed. Uh, the economic assessment is st- fairly straightforward. Uh, that gives them a lot more time to discuss this, I think, over the course of the summer. And there's a number of instances. So we have a June press conference. Yep. Uh, we have mid-year testimony before Congress. And we have the Jackson Hole Fed conference in late August. Lots of details to come soon. This was kind of a a brilliant move to calm down markets, and markets certainly rallied in response to this because it was not the fire hose situation. Carl Riccadonna, always wonderful to talk with you. Sure Carl Riccadonna is chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We are hearing uh, more about what's going to happen with James Comey, the former head of the FBI, and his potential testimony in front of Congress. He has agreed to testify, but that may not happen uh, due to a number of things. And before we get to that, I just want to uh, tell you about a statement that was just released from President Trump issued by the White House talking about leaks. He said the alleged leaks coming out of government agencies are deeply troubling. Uh, This comes after the United Kingdom uh, Prime Minister. Minister Theresa May raised questions about its relationship, the UK's relationship with the US and its willingness to share information with the US, given the degree of leaks and how frequently uh, they seem to be happening uh, with private information getting shared in newspapers. Chris Strom is national security reporter for Bloomberg. And uh, before we get to uh, what's going to happen with James Comey, uh, and uh, we are awaiting, just to sort of remind you, uh, we are waiting. President Trump is going to speak at NATO headquarters in Brussels, and we will bring that to you live when we get there. But Chris, I wanted to get your take on leaks. And, you know, we have heard so much about, you know, there are too many leaks coming out of national intelligence agencies. Uh, What is your sense of the path forward for the White House with respect to cracking down down on these leaks? And are these leaks really coming at a much faster pace than ever before? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people have been expecting the White House to take uh, action against uh, the leaks that have been happening. Uh, they kind of, the, a, but it's also important to kind of recognize that they're falling into different categories. The pressure that uh, Trump is facing right now is coming from, you know, the, the, the UK in terms of uh, leaking the information about the uh, the, the, the bombing suspect, um, and that tended to come from law enforcement uh, 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 officials. Um, the other leaking that's that's been happening has been, uh, you know, on the on the intelligence side of things and about the Trump Russia investigation. And so, you know, for a while now, the administration has been indicating indicating that they're going to ramp up their their pursuit of leakers, and that's what we're seeing now. You know, I, I do want to. Uh... Just reiterate that we are awaiting comments from President Trump, and he is walking to the podium uh, with NATO leaders. Chris, uh, I know that you will be listening to this, as will everybody in the intelligence community, as this has to do with how much potentially he may talk about how much NATO members will contribute to the effort to fight ISIS. And this has been a big focus. And uh, there has been an increased uh, sort of uh, agreement on fighting ISIS based on what we just saw in 
Manchester, the tragedy uh, where there was a bombing at an Ariana Grande uh, concert. Real quick, Chris, can you just give me a quick sense? What's your uh, under over about whether James Comey is actually going to testify uh, in front of U.S. Congress? I would say at this point, probably not in the in the near term. I think that what's going to happen is that uh, uh, Jim Comey is going to defer to uh, to to Mueller, the special counsel. Uh, they have a long history, and I think for from Mueller's point of view, Comey is is one of his core core witnesses uh, to uh, potential crimes being cr- committed, and and a lot of knowledge about the investigation. I think Comey will defer to Mueller. So you'd think that he's probably not going to end up testifying in front of Congress. Not in the short term. Uh, I think like we're going to have to wait and get through some of the initial investigative steps that Mueller wants to take. He wants to get things kind of nailed down and then see if he can allow Comey to go forward. And what about the White House? Could the White House engage in any actions to prevent Comey from testifying? Is that even on the table at this point? Uh, yes, we have we have heard that there is there is consideration being given to the White House exerting executive privilege over over Comey's ability to testify and over Comey's uh, the ability of, of lawmakers to get access to the memos that Comey that Comey wrote. Yeah. And um, that, that that's a whole different uh, that, right. that's a whole different situation. The White House is going to assert executive. Chris, Chris Strom, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Strom is national security reporter for uh, Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.